Okay, five lies of the devil, part three. The, the lie that we're talking about today is you're the only one. Somebody say, you're the only one. This lie, I have been really longing to share this message with you because this is the one that gets me. I am preaching to myself today. I've already preached it twice. I need it a third time. This one has blessed my life. Just studying for it has blessed my life. I hope it's gonna bless your life. And I've had a lot of positive feedback already about people who said, yep, that was me. Here's what I mean by you're the only one. The devil wants to convince you that you're the only one who struggles that way, who feels that way, who can't do this, who can't get their act together. All these other people around you have got it going on and look at you, shame on you. You are a subpar Christian, subpar human, subpar husband, wife, father, mother, whatever, okay? This has been a struggle for me. Here's how it comes to me. You're the only pastor who, okay? You're, maybe to you, you're the only business leader who. And I'll tell you, this one will mess with you. So we're gonna annihilate this lie in the name of Jesus. So stand with me today as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you can, re you can open it up uh, when you sit back down. But we're gonna read the passage together from the screen. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Let's read it together. On the count of three, one, two, three. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, I want you to look at that very first sentence in this text, because that's, that's the one we're aiming at right here. No temptation, none has overtaken you that is not common to men. That means that every temptation you will face is common to everyone else. That's the text. That's the truth. I pray God adds this truth to your heart and your mind in Christ. Let's pray and ask him to bless us together. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus for this word to go into our hearts as good seed in good soil, to take root and to bear fruit in our lives. Help us to see Jesus, him and him alone. In his mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So I'm not just your pastor. I am also a YouTube and radio personality. Aren't you lucky? I, I am on the radio on Family 590, W-E-Z-E, -E, uh, 445, drive home time, hopefully, for some of you. The deep end plays in 15-minute segments at that time, and I'm also on uh, the radio on Saturday, and we're on TV, we're everywhere, and by the way, welcome to everybody watching online or on television. We didn't do this yet, so give them a hand, welcome them in, glad to see you. Come and see us in person, nothing like being here live at one of our services. Visit waterschurch.org slash locations for a time and location near you. But anyway, I'm on television and I'm on uh, the radio and I do a podcast, weekly podcast called The Deep End. It's kind of like Wednesday night used to be for the church, but it's on your time and it's where you want it to be, which I really like. 
and we film it in our studio over here in this building. It's one of the best parts of my job in that podcast. How many, by the way, are deep enders? How many of you listen? Well, we need many more of you, so tune in. Tuesday nights or anytime after Tuesday night, 7 p.m., it is where we dive deeper into the scripture and I answer your questions and that is my favorite part of the deep end, to answer your questions. I wanna know where you're coming from. I wanna hear from you. Actually, most of uh, Jesus' ministry was in response to a question. So God's not afraid of your questions. Actually, I think he likes them because he's got an answer and I... I know the Bible, I like to think I know the Bible pretty well, and I, I, I think I can answer your questions with some measured accuracy according to God's word. But here's the thing, I got this question this week that applies directly to what we're talking about today. Here it is, the deep end question that I got was, is it normal for a Christian who doesn't have many friends to still feel lonely even though they have God in their life? So the assumption of this question is that if I become a Christian, loneliness disappears, like automatically. So this person made that assumption, and, and, and obviously for this person, his or her life, that hasn't happened. They feel lonely, and, and I just want you to look at the word feel, because feel is an important word here. Feelings are not fact. Amen. Amen. You don't have to follow your feelings. Feelings come and go. And I want to tell you that here's how I answered this question. <clears throat> Is it normal to feel lonely at times if you're a Christian, don't have many friends, even though you have God in your life? Yes, if. Yes, you will feel lonely, but there's a big qualifier, if. And here's the if. If you don't put any effort in to making Christian friends. This is why we have life groups at Waters Church, three kinds, three kinds of life groups. Small group where we talk about the weekend message, pray for each other around the content of the message, and, 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 and help and encourage one another. Action groups where we don't spend much time talking. We get out into the community and do works of service for our members of this church and for others. And then EFAM groups for those of you watching online. There are three kinds of groups for you so that you don't feel lonely because here's what you need to do about your feelings. You need to do action that cuts against the grain of your feelings. Please listen to that again. You need to do action that cuts against the grain of your feelings. Your actions can change your feelings. I will tell you this this morning. I needed to do this for myself because it was our first 8 a.m. service and I escaped one last week thanks to the one inch of snow. I was like, snow, hallelujah, let's cancel service. Yeah. <laughs> but, but this morning, no snow, right? I'm like, what is up with this January? Where's some snow when you need it? Because I didn't feel like coming to preach at 8 a.m. Shocking. <laughs> but I forced, I put action into it. And by the time I got here, I came in, I worshiped for the service, the first service. And, and we sang that song that God turns whatever the devil meant for evil, he uses it for good. And we started to sing that again and again. And the more I sang it, the more I felt like being here all of a sudden. What I'm trying to tell you is that my actions changed my feelings. If you choose to stay isolated from other Christians, you will feel lonely. 
But you, this is what I'm trying to tell you, and we tell, tell you this all the time, and some of you still refuse. You're so stubborn. You're such New Englanders. <laughs> I'm gonna do it on my own. I'm too busy. I got too many things. And you gotta get over these hurdles that keep you out of small group. Hurdle number one is I'm too busy. You gotta, you gotta force yourself to prioritize life group at Waters Church. If you're too busy for a small group, you're too busy. If you're too busy to spend time with other Christians, you're too busy. You have to be in community. Jesus, the first thing he did was not heal anybody or speak to thousands of people. The first thing he did was gather a small group around him. Remember that his first miracle happens at the wedding of Cana, and the Bible says that he brought his disciples with him to the wedding. He was in small group before he did a miracle. Think about that. If Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, endowed with the power of the Holy Spirit, needed a small group, you better believe you need one. Yes, you should have, you should have applied that one right there. Okay, so if you're too busy for a small group, you're too busy. Number two is you're too nervous. You're scared. And you're worried. Or you have low self-esteem. This is a big one. Uh, why are people so lonely in America today? They're doing a lot of research about this because loneliness is an epidemic in our country. And I found out this week that if you're lonely, perpetually, chronically lonely, it has the same detrimental health effects upon you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness will kill you. And so here's the thing. You've got to force yourself out of these predicaments. You have to force yourself. Some of you say, I'm, I, I, don't, I have low self-esteem. Okay, that is a cultural euphemism, low self-esteem. That is a cultural concept. Low self-esteem does not appear in the scriptures. I just want to let you know. Here's what low self-esteem is from God's point of view. Fear. Fear of man. Fear of what other people will say. Fear of what other people will think. Fear of what other people will do. That's really what it is. Because I have seen some really... How do I say this in a pastorally careful way? <laughs> Ugly people. <laughs> Marry some really beautiful people. Why? Shouldn't they have low self-esteem? They're so stinking ugly. You ever, you ever look at somebody and say, well, how the heck did you? Are they legally blind? What's going on? Obviously, that person who should have low self-esteem doesn't have low self-esteem. What have they gotten over? The fear of man. How do they do it? I don't know. They did it. I know that this is what the scripture says. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and sound mind. So you've got to get over that nervousness through the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, I think this is a hurdle for some of you, social media and political tribalism. Here's what social media, this is another reason why we're so lonely, and they're doing a lot of, like I said, they're doing a lot of research, so low self-esteem, but the second reason is toxic social media. Social media is amoral, it is not immoral. Amoral being that it is neither good nor bad, it is dependent upon how you use it. Just like money, money is amoral. You can take money to build a casino, and you can take money to build a church. It's how you use it. See, uh, Social media, because we, we get on social media and we politically fight, here's what we do. We build walls between us and people that we would normally have a relationship with if we didn't first have full 24-hour exposure to all their political views. Are you hearing me? 
So because I see that they vote that way and they think that way and they like this guy and they like that guy or like that girl, I can't be friends with them. Now I've built a wall where I could have built a bridge. Social media, toxic social media. So we're more lonely than ever. You gotta get off this stuff. That's why we're fasting social media. To learn how to connect in real life again. So the devil doesn't keep us alone. But here's the fourth hurdle you gotta get over to get into life group at Waters Church. Here's the fourth hurdle. Satan's accusation. Satan's accusation, and this is what he tells many of you. You're the only one. You can't go to that small group. All those people know the Bible much better than you. You can't go to small group. All those people have their act together, not you. You can't go to small group. You're not as Christian as they are. You can't be in life group. You're not gonna know where the Bible passage is that they gotta turn to, and you're gonna look like a fool. The good news is that we got smartphones now. You can just click it, you can scroll. <laughs> and click and find the passage that you need. It's so easy now. And I, I remember the old days when all we had was paper Bibles. Man, we used to look at, where's that Bible book that he's talking about? I guess I gotta be one of those guys that goes to the index. <laughs> See, only the people 40 years old and over are laughing at that because it's like a non-issue now. But the devil will come at you, and here's what I want you to write down in your notes. The first thing, isolation is the devil's playground. We have a cultural euphemism saying idleness is the devil's playground, or idle hands. That's not in the Bible. But I think there's themes in the Bible that are going to back up this phrase, isolation. If the devil can get you alone, and isolated meaning alone, isolated from other Christian believers, he can have his way with you. I'm telling you this, this one messes with me. I have to force myself into relationship with other Christians. Even when I don't want to, I've got to do action that undermines my feelings. Because isolation can because the devil's accusation of isolation can get worse when you come to church. You look at the church people. You come to the service. Maybe you've already felt this so far into the service. Look at all these other happy people. I had a miserable week. I'm sad today. Look at all these people, they, they look so into it. I'm not really into it today. You're the only, and then the devil, you're the only one. Oh, oh, look at how the, the, those people know the words to the song. You don't know. Oh, those people know what the scripture says. You don't know. Oh, those people know when to say amen to the pastor. You don't know. By the way, sometimes I'll tell you, can I get, a, get an amen? <laughs> all right? Isolation. The devil's playground. And, and, if you fall into this trap, you've got to open your Bible because the people who headline in this book, listen, were seriously jacked up people. Do you understand what I'm saying? They were messed up. Abraham sold out his wife twice slept with his, her handmaid, had a child out of wedlock, jacked up. Moses killed the guy, buried him in the sand, thought he could get away with it, jacked up. Noah, righteous Noah, right? Ark, saved the world, saved humanity. Afterwards, planted a vineyard, had some wine, got drunk, got naked, fell asleep in his tent, jacked up. David. Righteous King David, man after God's own heart, slept with a woman who was not his wife, killed the husband, tried to cover it up, 
jacked the people who headline in this text were not good people some of you are under the impression that the bible is written by good people to other good people on how to be better people <laughs> wrong the Bible is the story of how God in heaven saw that everybody was a mess and decided to do something about it in his son Jesus Christ and sent them as a sacrifice for our sins that if we put our faith in him, no matter we are jacked up, we will be raised up at the last day with him. <laughs> Hallelujah. Open your Bible and read about how you are not the only one. So 1 Corinthians 10, we read verse 13, but we're gonna back up in the text. Look at verse one. Paul the Apostle's writing. For I do not want you to be unaware. So he's got, he's got con some, some concerns for the Corinthians. You might not be aware of this, Corinthians. What might not they be aware of? That our fathers, somebody say our fathers. I only ask you to say that and circle the word our, our please. Circle it, because it's an important word. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, we're not alone. We have some history here. Our fathers. Now, I can't overestimate the importance of that word, our. Here's why. Paul is a Jew writing to a predominantly Gentile congregation in the first century city of Corinth. A Christian community had started in this city. Corinth, by the way, was like one of the most pagan cities in the ancient world. It was, it was like Athens, it was like, I was sorry, it was like Atlantic City, I'm sorry, no, Las Vegas, Atlantic City, Atla Las Vegas. <laughs> it's like Las Vegas and Boston and New York all wrapped up into one. Educated, wealthy, and sinful. Seriously big, all wrapped into one. That was Corinth. And the church was very sinful, sin-laden, jacked up. Okay, and Paul says to these Gentile believers, because Jesus Christ has made a way for Gentiles to come to know the God of Abraham, the God of the Jews. He says to them who have no history with Israel, no history with Moses, Abraham, the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, our fathers, in other words, you're in. You're in the family now. I know you're not genealogically related to Abraham, but because of Jesus, it's no longer about bloodlines, it's about Jesus' bloodline, which spreads over every ethnic race on the planet. You're in our fathers. Now, I wanna just paint this picture a little clearer so you get it. The Corinthians would have been like people new to Waters Church, or new to Christianity, with no religious upbringing, no Christian parents, no heritage of faith. That's the Corinthians. And, and the fathers that he's gonna talk about are like the really Christian people who have been in the Bible their whole lives, who are chapter and verse people who don't ever need to reference the index to find the passage. And he connects the two people together. And he says, our fathers, you are with me in this. In other words, here's the implication. You're not alone. Then what does he say about them? Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized in Moses, into Moses, and in the cloud and the sea. And all drank the same spiritual food. That's the manna that appeared on the ground every day. And all drank the same spiritual drink. That's the water that flowed from the rock miraculously. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Here's what Paul is saying. 
He's saying, the really uh, baptized in the faith people, the people who didn't just have any leader, the people who had Moses as their leader. Okay, you people have got yourself a great pastor. See, that's where you should have said amen. For heaven's sakes. Okay, yeah, you'll learn. Imagine Moses was your pastor with the miracles and the staff and the split in the sea. Don't tell me you wouldn't take God much more seriously in your life if you saw a stinking sea split in half. If you saw plagues that rescued you from your enemies. If you saw water supernaturally come from a rock and manna up here, bread up here on the ground every day for you to eat. He says they all had all those experiences. They had all the Bible knowledge. They had Moses as their leader. They had all the miracles. God showed up. He didn't just talk about them. He talked to them from the mountaintop, from the cloud. He says they had all that experience as a, as a people of faith. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And the words most of them is like the greatest understatement in the Bible. 600,000 Jews came out of Egypt. Only two crossed into the promised land from that generation. Basically, Paul's saying this. Even the people with the most religious heritage, upbringing, background, the greatest prophet, leader the world's ever seen, the most exposure to God's power and miracles, even those people failed. So here's point number one. No one, no matter how godly they appear, is exempt from a real and personal struggle with serious temptation. How many of you, that point right there is worth the price of coming to church today? You're not alone. I, and I know it's really easy to look like we all have our act together because we're in church today, but we don't. None of us do. And if you feel it, if you feel struggle, if you feel tempted, if you've failed God, welcome to the club. Even the most religiously sanctimonious people on the planet have done this. So don't let the devil isolate you. I feel like you're not getting this. So I gotta illustrate it a little bit clearer. I know I look like I'm together. But I'm not. You knew I wasn't long for this jacket, right? You know me. I can, I can look good in front of you. But I know me. I know that this is just outward apparel that I have used to cover up. We getting frisky at Waters Church. What I'm trying to tell you is I got some holes. I got some, I got some secrets. Now are you seeing me clearly? 
Can you see me now? This is me. I have holes. Now, don't look at me so sanctimonious. You do too. I got something. The devil knows where to get me. He knows what that hole's about right there. And look at this duct tape, this white duct tape. I've been trying to cover these holes with my works of righteousness. I've been trying to be a better person. How many know when you try to be a better person, you end up being a worse person? C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried to be good. I, I know what this hole is. This hole is from my childhood where someone did something unthinkable to me and it's been sticking at me ever since. I got some holes that I don't see. This one right here. My wife sees that one all the time. I don't see it. She's like, why are you always like that? I'm like, like what? That! I don't know what you're talking about. We got some holes. You're not alone. No one, no matter how godly they appear, no matter how religious their upbringing, is exempt from a serious struggle with sin. Point number two. I'm gonna put this back on before anybody lusts. Point number two. No one's struggle is strange. Yeah, you say, oh, pastor, you don't know what I've been through. Yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. I've been in this business a long time, my friend. I've seen it all. Nothing will shock me. And nothing shocked the Apostle Paul when it came to the Corinthians who were struggling to be Christian in a pagan society. He says, you guys think, he says to them, you think you're any different? You think the sins that you're struggling with, these are new? There's no new temptation, there's just new packaging around the same idols. Look at the sins that he underlines, underscores, for the fathers of the faith that wandered through the wilderness after they'd seen the miracles and heard the voice of God from the mountain and followed Moses through the Red Sea. He says in verse six, now these things took place as examples for us that, they, that we might not desire evil as they did. Anybody here ever desire evil? Let me put it another way. Anybody here ever wanna do something you know was wrong? Your lack of response betrays you Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up early to play. By the way, when did they do that? When did they make the golden calf? Right after God had annihilated Pharaoh's army in the waters. You'd think you'd get serious with God if he did that for you. No, like moments later, they're partying and having sex with each other. Like a crazy wild bunch of banshees. Are we any different? Idolaters, idolatry is putting anything in the place of God. Anything as your source of significance. True, uh, anything as your source of validation, affirmation, approval. 
If you don't get that from God, your father, you'll try to get it from everything or everyone else in your life. Verse eight, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. Is there sexual immorality in the church? Oh yeah. Verse nine, we must not put Christ to the test. What does that mean? That means seeing how far you can go before you get caught. Anybody ever been there? As some of them did, and they were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble. And the word grumble is gagosmos in Greek. The Bible, the New Testament, it was written in Greek originally. It's an onomatopoeic word, which means it sounds like what it is, gagosmos. Think about that. If you're grumbling, what are you doing? Gagosmos, 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 gagosmos. And the word is the strongest word in the Greek language for grumbling. It literally means to get absolutely fed up with your life and want to die. We're not talking about just complaining a little bit. We're talking about, I don't want to live anymore. Anybody been there? You know, the Israelites had been delivered from Egypt in 400 years of slavery, got into the wilderness, and they got thirsty. And the moment that they got thirsty, they started to say, would that we had died in Egypt. What? You begged to get out. Some of them wanted to go back to Egypt because they were thirsty. They were, you, thirsty? And you want to die? Let me ask you this question. Has anyone let some trivial matter throw them off the edge? You're not alone. What I'm trying to tell you, what the scripture's trying to tell you, what this book is for is to tell you you are not the only one. Don't let the devil lie to you anymore. Here, here's the first part of verse 13 in the New Living Translation, just so we have it a little bit clearer. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. We Christians like to think that there are two types of sins, don't we? We church people. There are pagan sins, and then there are church people sins. Pagan sins, sexual immorality, and drugs, and um, fortification, and partying, and you know, uh, really, really, oh, extortion, and all that stuff, right? That's pagan sins. And church sins are like oversleeping. <laughs> Getting grumpy once in a while. Not saying thank you. <laughs> Wrong! I have been in this business for 20 years and I have seen all the pagan sins in the church. All of them. Many times from the people on the stage preaching to the people in the seats. I've seen pastors fall. I've had friends who are pastors fall. I've watched pastors get addicted to drugs, have multiple affairs on their wives, be exposed as closeted homosexuals, be fiscally irresponsible. Got a pastor's friend whose wife had to go to rehab because she turned to alcohol to soothe the pain. You're not the only one. And when a pastor falls, why is it? Why, friends, is it? 
that we mark them for life when we're not supposed to. Galatians chapter six, you know what it says about when people fall? Here's what it says, brothers, if any one of you is caught in, what's that next three letter word? Any. Not some transgressions. So everything but adultery. No, any transgression. You who are spiritual should, what's the next word? Restore them. Restore means to come back to the original position in a spirit of gentleness. That gentleness, we have failed at that for 2,000 years. We're not gentle, we're mean. Somebody falls, we say, I knew it. Church people say it. He deserves it. He was always a jerk. Then all the other gossipers come out and say, yeah, well, I, I remember this time, I remember this time, I remember this time. All this stuff comes out. And then it says this, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. <sighs> you know when a pastor falls, when a leader falls, or when a brother or sister in Christ falls big time, our response should never be, how could that happen? Our response should be, I feel that temptation too. That could be me. God help them and help me. Is this helping anybody today? I'm just trying to tell you that lie of the devil. You're the only one with a marriage that can't get its act together. You're the only one who can't get that kid under control. You're the only one who acts like that. You're the only one who feels like that. You are not the only one. We are all in this together. Fighting the same stinking temptations that is common to every one of us. So in verse 11, he says, these things happened to them as an example, back to 1 Corinthians 10, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I remember hearing a story from a pastor who was having lunch with an atheist friend who was desperately trying to win to Christ. They were at a cafe, and while they were talking, on the television came the news report of a, a notable Christian leader in America who fell into grave and immoral sin, and they were, you know, even um, showing how he was walking into, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, into jail, basically, into into being arrested. And 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 the uh, atheist, when this came on the screen, turns to his pastor friend and says, "You see that? That's why I can't believe in what you believe." And the pastor friend said. We're not all like that. No, no, that's, that's an exception to the rule. There's a lot more good Christians than bad Christians. I'm, I'm telling you, he says, and the atheist shocked him. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. He said, you know what I mean by saying, well, here's what I mean. I know for a fact that that man will never be treated the same again by your people. Why would I want to be a part of a community like that? Christians, grace is either going to become our greatest weapon to destroy the enemy or the enemy is going to annihilate grace and have us in the palm of his hands. I want to be a church where when people fall, we seek diligently to bring them back into fellowship and make them brothers and sisters and act like Jesus acts as if it never happened. But God's grace 
What kind of people are we going to be? We have got to say it. We're not alone in this fight. We're together. Even the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 18 says, I'm not alone. You're not alone. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good. Guess what? Paul the apostle was jacked up. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. What is a Christian? Is a Christian a good person? No. Is a Christian a person who believes the right things? No. Is a Christian a person who goes to church? No. A Christian is someone who knows they need God in heaven to save them. Period. That's what a Christian is. That's what a Christian is. Number three. No matter the struggle or sin, God provides a solution. This is the hope in the message. There's an answer to your struggle. God wants to give you a solution. He doesn't want to leave you out there flailing about in immorality and lust and struggling and thinking that you're the only one and you can't win. God has a solution for you. Let's look at what this text tells us in verse 13. Again, no temptation has overtaken you except that it's common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I take from this thing three solutions in Christ. Number one, God doesn't let you go. He doesn't let go. God is faithful. You struggled last week, God's faithful. He's not done with you. 2019 was terrible, God's not done with you. Faithful is he who has called you to finish the work he started in you, and he will be faithful to complete it in you until the day Christ Jesus comes again. Even your memory verse for our fast, you should look at it closely because it backs up what I just said. It says, now may, God, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify means set apart for his purposes completely. I'm glad that God does not sanctify me halfway. It goes all the way with me. And then it says at the end, God is faithful and he will surely do it. Number two, he will empower you to say no when you're in temptation because you don't want to just use God's grace as an excuse to sin. So when you're in temptation, you can look for that way of escape. You can say, God, I'm tempted right now. I want to, I want to break your commandments. And I know you're not shocked because Pastor talked about it this week and I, nobody, does, nobody doesn't go through this. So help me to find the way to come out of this. And he will provide a way. But number three, he covers your holes. He covers your holes. And I love this part the best. So um, before I get there, there, there's times in your life where you're going to feel like a gigantic failure as a Christian. I know this because many of the people of the Old Testament and New Testament felt that way as well. So there's this guy named Joshua at the end of the Bible. Joshua, not the Joshua who followed Moses and led the people of Israel into the promised land. No, that's a different Joshua. I'm talking about Joshua the high priest who accompanies the people of Israel back into the land after their 70-year exile in Babylon. This is at the end of the Old Testament. And the people are not, you know, doing right. They're not, they're not moral. They're struggling with sin, just like their forefathers, just like you, just like me. And Joshua, the high priest, doesn't know what to do. And so here's what it says in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan, there he is, standing at his right hand to accuse him. What does, this, what does Satan do? We talked about this in week one. He accuses. He goes after you. He attacks you. He questions your character. 
And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? He's talking about Joshua there. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. In other words, he was in the presence of God and he felt dirty. This is, a, this is an analogy. This is a picture of our spiritual condition. Joshua, a follower of Yahweh, feels dirty and covered in filth. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is what God does for Joshua, and this is what God does for you in your walk with Christ. There's going to be moments, like there has been in my life, where I just feel completely exposed for the person that I really am. I've had good weeks, I've had bad weeks, I've had good years, I've had bad years. And there are times when I try to pray and I try to go to God and I, sometimes even when I try to show up here and I think this is who I am. This is all I got. And Satan comes and he says, yup, you're the only one, you're the only one, look at you, look at your holes. But my Bible tells me that God in heaven sees me that way and rebukes that devil in Jesus' name. And in Jude, we're told to use that exact word, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Get out of here. And I love this, because here's the picture. I want you to see it. I want you to see it. Jesus comes and gives us a new covering. He clothes us in his pure vestments. Isaiah 61.10 says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And when you are in Christ Jesus, this is how God sees you. This is how God sees you. So in the New Testament, we're, to, we're commanded to put on the Lord Jesus. I thought about getting a robe because the scripture says robe, but how many know hoodies are cooler? <laughs> Last thing I want you to write down is the presence of temptation or sin does not eliminate the presence and power of God for your life. You are not alone. There's nothing that you have gone through or experienced or feel that God is not unaware of, that other people don't struggle with. Don't let the devil lie to you in this, in this way anymore. We are together and we are stronger in Jesus' name.